0: Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land.
1: Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And hey, with the Baseball Hall of Fame announcements coming out Tuesday, I'm doing a little Cooperstown special and figured I'd bring on a longtime friend of the show, baseball author and historian Galen White, his newest book, The Best Little Baseball Town in the World, which we'll find out about later in the show And Galen, this is your fifth book, right?
0: Yes, it is. All since I retired from the corporate world. So it's uh, amazing how I guess I've carved out a second career.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's been (laughs) pretty cool. Um, Let's talk about the Hall of Fame and David Ortiz, the only new member of the Hall of Fame Tuesday. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Curt Schilling, and Sammy Sosa are now officially off the ballot until the Veterans Committee. What did you think about the voting?
0: You know, the voting has become so politicized, Robert, and while I'm happy to see David Ortiz uh, get in, I think he's deserving. But when you keep out a Barry Bonds and a Roger Clemens for use of steroids and David Ortiz, while never truly implicated, there's a question about him at one point. I don't want to take anything away from David Ortiz. I think we expected him to be in there. He's in there, and he deserves to be there. But I also think uh, after so many years now that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens should be there. Uh, The the fact that we're judging these guys, and I realize that uh, some of the use of the the steroids uh, affected their performance. I'm not diminishing that. But, you know, when you look at a Bonds or a Clemens, they would have been Hall of Famers anyway. And I don't like even – whitewashing it a little bit that way but it's my point is it it, the voting has become so murky and the baseball writers uh themselves i mean when you look i was looking at the voting and they had um six blanks submitted among the 394 ballots they had it looks like seven or eight didn't even return their hall of fame ballots so who are these guys who are voting because I don't believe they're doing a very good job. Billy Wagner to be down just over 50%, given his record and how he compares with other relievers, he ought to be higher up. So there's just a lot of inconsistencies in the voting. And until they address that with the Baseball Writers Association, I think we're going to continue to have that.
1: Yeah, let's uh, mention Billy Wagner, because you said 51% of the vote. His Cooperstown case, Galen, 6 all time and saves of the eight relievers in Cooperstown, number one in batting average against number one in strikeouts per nine innings. Only Mariano Rivera has a better career whip ERA and opponent OPS. That's comparing him to the eight guys that are already in Cooperstown as relievers. His batting average against and strikeouts per nine are the best in baseball history of any pitcher with more than 900 innings. If you compare him to 2018 hall of famer, Trevor Hoffman, Billy Wagner's ERA, is over a half run better. Despite 108 fewer appearances than Hoffman, Wagner's career war was just 1.9 points lower than Hoffman. I find it real interesting with the relievers, Galen, that it's almost like they treat them like the punters in the NFL. There's just no respect for a, a position that, You could talk to any baseball team over the last, I don't know, 50 years, and it seems like uh, your ace reliever, the guy out of the bullpen, is super key if you're going to win a World Series.
0: Well, I looked at some of the stats too, uh, Robert, and Raleigh Fingers and Bruce Suter and Goose Gossage, all those guys are well-built. Billy Wagner saves. Raleigh Fingers had 341 saves. Bruce Suter, 300. Goose Gossage, 310. Dennis Eckersley, 390. They're all in the Hall of Fame. And, and Billy Wagner has 422. The inconsistency is what gets me, uh, Robert. I mean, in my mind, Tony Oliva, Minnie Minosa, Jim Cott, and Gil Hodges should have been in there a long time ago. I understand the logic behind Buck O'Neill, but Fowler, you know, I realize he was the first African-American. I think he played in a game in 1878, but um I still, even when I go through some of his history, other than that particular distinction, I, I don't know why he would be in there. So, you know, we just seem to have this uh, different set of rules for different situations. And when you, you know, we were talking prior to this conversation about Lance Berkman, I mean, 15 years, 366 home runs, 293 batting average, and Unfortunately, I'm I'm an old guy and I don't pay a whole lot of attention to war, and I realize that's a new stat for everybody. But uh, he's not even on the radar anymore, so far as I know.
1: Yeah, let's uh, save the Lance Berkman conversation. But I, I wanted to bring up before we ended talking about the guys that were on the last part of the ballot: the Bonds, the Clemens, the Shillings, the Sosas, uh, Roger Clemens. On Twitter said, quote, my family and I put the Hall of Fame in the rearview mirror 10 years ago. I didn't play baseball to get into the Hall of Fame. I played to make a generational difference in the lives of my family, then focus on winning championships while giving back to my community and the fans as well. It was my passion. I gave it all I had the right way for my family and for the fans who supported me. I am grateful for that support. I'd like to thank those who took the time to look at the facts and vote for me. Hopefully everyone can now close this book and keep their eyes forward, focusing on what is really important in life. All love exclamation point unquote from Roger Clemens on Twitter and Galen. It doesn't seem like uh, Roger Clemens is all that concerned, or at least his public face isn't. Uh, Schilling said, don't even bother voting for me. And less guys did vote for him. So, you know, those guys seem to be comfortable with it. And, you know, I, I'm one of those people that was really angry and frustrated with all of the cheating over the years, but also, you know, as this Astros uh, situation has unfolded the last couple of years with, you know, what they were accused of, I've become more comfortable Galen and just saying, man, baseball has just been loaded with cheating for decades and decades, whatever it's been. And, and I don't know what you do at this point, And I don't know how you differentiate it. And frankly, Somebody like Shoeless Joe Jackson almost seems like a saint compared to some of the guys that we've talked about <laughs> over the last uh, three or four decades, if you know what I mean.
0: Well, and and, and nowhere in the discussion anymore is Pete Rose. And wh- the wh- why I find that interesting is that all you got to do is turn on the TV these days and you see, uh, you know, all the betting that's taking place, Caesars uh, Palace and, you know, sports is in bed now with the gambling houses. Let's face it. And yet uh, Pete Rose uh, is been banned for life or, uh, you know, betting on whatever he did. Uh, It's just, we've gotten away from why someone should be in the Hall of Fame. And that is their performance on the field. When you look at a Bonds and a Clemens and even an Alex Rodriguez, who got 34% of the vote. And and I will go so far as to say, you know, Sammy Sosa, uh, those guys had a huge impact on the game. I mean, 1998. When the game was in a lot of trouble, what happened? Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa arrive on the scene. And for that one season, rejuvenated baseball's reputation. You know, and Sosa, when you look at his numbers, uh, he had uh, over 60 home runs. I think it was three times. Um, That's amazing. And he only gets 18.5% of the vote. So it's become, unfortunately, uh, so politicized. I I don't get mad over it. There's other things to get mad about, I guess. But... It's just disappointing because some of these guys. I mean, uh, when you look at Manny Minoso, who's finally getting in, he should have been in a long time ago. He was. He was broke the color barrier with the Chicago White Sox. He became known as as Mister White Sox, just as Ernie Banks was Mister Cubs. I'm old enough to remember seeing Manny Minoso play. Exciting ball player. I was just a kid in his rookie season when he led the league in triples and stolen bases and hit over 300. But, I mean, Minoso played in five different decades. And I realized two of them were publicity stunts by Bill Veck. But whatever. Uh, he had a tremendous impact on the game. He comes from Cuba. He played in the Negro Leagues prior to breaking in the baseball. And yet, we waited so long to get Mini Minoso in, he passed away. I think it was around five years ago. So, it's, it's just unfortunate. I'm glad to see that Jim Cott finally made it. And Tony Oliva. Those have been two guys I've been saying for some time should be in. I also believe Tommy John ought to be in there and Luis Tion. I think Dick Allen, who failed to get in by one vote, uh, he should be in as well. So uh, it's the Baseball Writers Association. You know, last year, they didn't vote anybody in. This year, they just voted one in. And it was, it was interesting to see this number here of the 340 elected members of the Hall of Fame, 268 are players, and 135 of those 268 have gotten in through the Baseball Writers Association ballot. So only half of the players in there, just roughly half, have gotten into the Hall of Fame through the writers ballot. So I don't know what these guys are voting on. I don't know where their heads are and why anybody would be given the right to vote and return them blank, as six of them did, or that seven of them never even returned it. I don't know what that says about the process
1: yeah and and I'll say about sosa, I think people are differentiating or they're trying to differentiate You're left to do this with these guys that you know supposedly took steroids. Well, you know Sosa was one player when it seemed like you know the steroid era wasn't going on, and then everything changed, and I think everybody differentiates him from bonds. Or McGuire, uh, well, McGuire might be another story altogether too, but differentiates him from Bonds because you know Sosa. All of a sudden, his numbers jumped up so massively, and also his body jumped up so massively. So I feel like that might have had something to do with it, Galen. I mean, you know, he 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 looked like one guy, this skinny string bean, and then all of a sudden he's got muscles everywhere. <laughs> He jumps to this huge guy, and, and I understand Bonds did the same thing, but you know, people think, well, Bonds, before his body jumped, had about three MVPs in the bag by that point.
0: Yes, and I, I totally agree with you. Of the two, Barry Bonds is far better candidate and far more deserving than Sammy Sosa, and I, I agree with you. Both went from, well, Sammy Sosa particularly, I happen to have, his, I had until I sold it, his rookie baseball card, and he was a string bean. I believe didn't he start in Texas. Is that correct? I think that's right.
1: Yeah. He was Texas Ranger. I might've seen him. Like I might've driven up to a a game, a Rangers game to see Nolan pitch and, and Sammy was playing at that time. I, I can't quite recall. I don't know if they, they were on the same team together, but that sounds about right. Unfortunately,
0: we've got several guys in that category where uh, there have been some things that happened to them that, uh, Calling a question uh, the legitimacy of their accomplishments, and you know we haven't even mentioned Rafael Palmero. I mean, there's another guy who um, had, had an outstanding career, but as nobody talks about, it, he's forgotten. Uh, I don't really know what you do. I'm not one of these guys who put them in and put an asterisk by it. I'm not for building a separate wing to the Hall of Fame. It's uh, it's just unfortunate that it's come to this, and I don't know of any other sports Hall of Fame that has this issue.
1: Um, you mentioned Dick Allen. Let Let's uh mention the fact that he came up one vote short, Galen, and he's almost in there. What is his Cooperstown case? Wh- why do you think Dick Allen belongs in the Hall of Fame?
0: Well, this just contrasts him to a guy who just made it, David Ortiz. David Ortiz was popular with the media, popular with the fans, big smile. He was lovable. Dick Allen, for most of his career, was not. After he retired, Dick Allen uh, sort of rehabbed his image, and in his l- latter years was had a website and was very cordial with fans. But that wasn't the case while he was a player. He and certainly he was not uh, all that well liked by the media. The, your your PR image uh, in baseball unfortunately has a lot to do with whether you get in. I mean, Barry Bonds was uh, most a lot of sports writers considered him surly and didn't care care for him. That's costing him too. It's not just the drugs. I think it's the image. It's it's uh, you know how likable was he? I don't believe Alex Rodriguez was all that likable either when he at one point. But he's rehabbed his image by being on television. Just by the way, as David Ortiz. I mean, David Ortiz has been uh, on ESPN as an analyst, and and
1: that's helped him. Sure, he's like the Charles Barkley, really, of yeah, baseball yeah. right now.
0: Yeah, no, he's a good old boy, and 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 the media likes that. But you get on the wrong side of the media, and they can they can do you in. And I think there's a Kurt Schilling. Uh, whether you like him or not, uh, and he didn't have any stains around drugs or anything like that. I mean, the guy has the record to be in the Hall of Fame, but because some of his political views and his statements are not politically correct, because he's not woke, he's not in there. And, you know, again, are we going to start putting a political lens on all this stuff? Then you've you've lost all the purpose of the Hall of Fame. We need to get past that stuff and focus on what these guys did is is, uh, on the baseball field. And I'm not saying you rule out everything they did off the field. But I saw that it was Omar Vizquil, you know, he got uh, 23.9% of the votes and He's uh, had some problems. Uh, I think uh, he's had some abuse issues that have come up since uh, the last ballot, and he's, he's gone way down. But if you look, you know, I was looking too at Schilling. Schilling's numbers this year are 58.6. He got 54 bu- fewer votes this year, down from 71.1. Now, is that because some of these voters abided by Schilling's request? If they thought he was good enough a year ago, why did 54 of them think he's not good enough now? That's what the question should be. Did he have the career that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? And 54 voters decided in just one year's time to take him off.
1: Yeah, And, there, and there's something else to that too, Galen, where which really complicates things and which I've never understood is, you know, they only let you vote for 10 guys every year. And, and that's an issue because sometimes you just think, well, this guy's not going to make the Hall of Fame why should I vote for him? I better vote for this guy because I got to keep him on the ballot for another year. And maybe he makes it down the road. There's all these strategies that you have to have because you only can vote for 10 guys. And it's just stupid. It makes no sense whatsoever.
0: There's a Hall of Fame or I say it's the Hall of Fame. It's called the Baseball Reliquary, the Shrine of the Eternals. And it's a group out in California. And I'm one of the voters. And uh, they've got people in the the Shrine of the Eternals, such as Kurt Flood. And basically their criteria is the impact these guys had on the game. Pete Rose is in the Shrine of the Eternals. And, you know, one of the guys I write about in one of my books, Steve Bilko, a minor league slugger, also was in. Because they consider, um, you know, just what impact these guys had on the game. And a lot of them were characters. So, for example, Bill Spaceman Lee is in the Shrine of the Eternals. So is Marvin Miller. So is Bob Costas. I kind of call the Shrine of the Eternals the poor man's hall of fame. And they they limit how many people you can vote for as well. So I've been down that road. And and there is, when you do vote, you realize there's some guys that maybe you think should be in there, but you know they're not going to get the support. So, yes, you don't vote for them. You know, when I look at the current list, I, I saw Scott Rowland play. Did I think then? Do I think now he was a Hall of Famer? No, but yet he was 63.2%. Now, you might be able to pull out some of his stats and prove me wrong, but, you know, just in terms of what I saw at that time and remember of him, I just don't think of as highly of him as some of the voters do. Now, Todd Helton, uh, 52%, Andrew Jones, 44%. Uh, Andrew Jones had some outstanding years, but I don't consider him a Hall of Famer. And while Hilton was an outstanding hitter, here again, I I just, in terms of what I thought of the guy when I saw him play, outstanding player, Hall of Famer, no. So it's kind of, I guess, in the eye of the beholder, Robert, but I guess also it shows that I'm getting older (laughs) and maybe not as appreciative of some of the accomplishments of some of today's players. So I'll acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a bit of – where guys are just having to, and I say guys, media, the people that are voting, they're deciphering this through the stats. And that's the problem is sometimes we look at a guy and go, well, does this guy look like a hall of famer? But, you know, I think what got would get lost over the years, Galen is, you know, sometimes you think of a guy in terms of, is he a hall of famer because of how good his team was or, you know, you saw him in the playoffs every year where that's not always a, f- a fair assessment of somebody. And in a way, the stats equalizes things a little bit and gives guys a shot that maybe you wouldn't have thought of before because you're thinking of him through a certain lens. I mean, Todd Helton's with the Rockies. W- why would you ever want to put a guy with the Rockies into the Hall of Fame <laughs> or or Scott Rowland is somebody that's kind of under the radar you know, with the Cardinals or whatever, I think, you know, I think the stats become a little bit of an equalizer and take a little bit of, okay, what situation was he in and where was he? And, 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 you know, all of that, it takes it away. So, so maybe um, the stats, the new stats help a little bit in the, in the, in those terms anyways, Galen.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I re and I also know the game's changed. And, you know, when I look at the list, I see Andy Pettit is, just over 10% uh, of the vote. You know, he was an outstanding pitcher. Didn't he also pitch for the Astros in addition to the Yankees? I seem to recall he did. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, he was uh, on a, a couple of huge teams for the Astros, helped uh, take him to the World Series. Unfortunately, that ended in a sweep. But uh...
0: well, see, and I mentioned his name because he was in the shadows of others through most of his career. I mean, uh, with the Yankees, he was in the shadow of Roger Clemens. And you're you're right. They're They're kind of, extenuating circumstances around some of these guys, you know, in preparing for our conversation, I looked at Tommy John, who for a number of reasons, I think he ought to be in the hall of fame, but the similarities of Tommy John's numbers to Jim, Jim Cotts is amazing. Tommy John won 288 games. Jim Cott won 283. Each of them won 20 games or more three times. Tommy John pitched 26 seasons. Jim Cott 25. Uh, Tommy John had 46 shutouts, Jimmy, uh, Jim caught 31. And also, though a lot of those wins that Jim, Tommy John uh, got was after Tommy John's surgery. And so if you look at the Tommy John surgery and the impact that has had on the game and on other pitchers who have followed him, you know, to me, as a former sports writer, if I was still, if I'd ever had the chance to vote, I would consider that. I mean, here's a guy who won well over 100 games. After the surgery, and then he went on to pitch um, for a total of 26 seasons. I mean, that really is amazing. And that's when the surgery wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. And Luis Tion, who I haven't mentioned yet, there's another guy who I've, I've long thought should be in there. And, uh, you know, he had 15 years, won 229 games, two seasons. He had a 1.60 ERA in 1968 with the Indians of all teams. And then a one point nine one ERA with the Red Sox in seventy two. So you don't hear Luis Teon's name mentioned at all. So I've been to the Hall of Fame. Have you been there, Robert? It's it's, it's a wonderful place. It, when you go in there, and uh, you know, you're just surrounded by history. And anybody who hasn't been there, I say go, because it will really, you, you know, you, you wax with nostalgia. And the, and just the town of Cooperstown itself is phenomenal. But to go in there and and look at these guys who are in the Hall of Fame and realize their accomplishments. It's a great place. It's a great institution. But I would like to see some of the guys we've talked about be in the Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, you talk about Jim Cott, 283 wins. Also, don't forget, won 16 gold gloves. He wasn't really great, but he was so consistently good for 25 seasons. Same thing with Tommy John. And that used to be a thing where if you're good, but you're not great, but you've done it for a long time, how do we do that? Or... If you're great, but you're not great for long enough. And that's where you get to somebody like Lance Berkman and and Gil Hodges. And one thing that's always hurt these guys is the counting stats, as they like to call it. And it seems like Tony Oliva and Gil Hodges both opened the door for some players with their election this time because... Lance Berkman is the perfect case. Let's take, you know, the Gil Hodges versus Lance Berkman argument. Gil Hodges, 8,104 career plate appearances. Lance Berkman, 7,814. Roughly 300 less plate appearances than Hodges, but he had about 1,000 more than Tony Oliva, who just got into the Hall of Fame. And then Hodges, 846 career OPS. Berkman, 943 OPS. That much better. Hodges, 2 Top 10 MVP finishes. Berkman, five top 10 MVP finishes. Hodges, postseason OPS, 761. Berkman, 949. Hodges won three gold gloves at first base, so maybe more of an all around player, although Berkman played first base in the outfield during his career, so multiple positions. Give Hodges also some credit for managing the 69 Miracle Mets, which may have played a factor in his induction, but Berkman. Just started his career managing. Unfortunately, it's it's little HBU here in, in in Houston, Galen, but Hodges definitely has him there. I thought this really though opened the door for Berkman's Hall of Fame case. And, and what is your thought on, you know, these shorter, greater careers and these longer, really good careers? Do you just have to include all of those type of guys, or how do you look at that? I
0: think it needs to be done on a case by case basis, and I believe. Uh, you, you you present a very good case for Lance Berkman, particularly in contrast to Tony Leva, who I've long felt should be in there, and, and Gil Hodges. I think, you know, Tony Leva, I think he had 15 years. And what did Gil Hodges, did he also have 15? I believe he did. You know, what happened, you know, Gil Hodges, uh, you know, he's one of the boys of summer. I mean, here again, you got this image thing. He was part of this very nostalgic team, the Brooklyn Dodgers. They were on television every postseason. So, Gil Hodges was a name that every kid grew on, growing up in the 50s knew. Um, he was surrounded by other stars. So, to some degree, he was overshadowed by those stars Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Rory Campanella, to just name three. But um, I, I, I think Gil Hodges belongs in there. And while I hadn't thought about it a whole lot until you and I started this conversation, I think Lance Berkman uh, will get in there. Where you play has a huge difference, it's not as significant now playing in New York compared to other places. But the big cities in New York and Los Angeles, and Chicago, playing there, has, you've always had an advantage. You know, Houston, while it's been a great baseball town for some time, guys kind of get lost in the shuffle.
1: Let me go back to Manny Minoso, and, and you talked a little bit about him, but just to run through his career because it's real interesting, he was – one of the league's first Latino players and all-stars considered the first black Cuban player. Also Tony Oliva, another Cuban. He had an 848 OPS, 2,110 hits, 195 home runs, 216 steals. Great all-around player, 13-time all-star. You said it, Galen, it was long overdue. And also Galen, hey, this is a hall of fame nickname. Growing up, you never <laughs> forgot who mini minoso was he was arrestus minoso o r e s t e s that was his given name but not so memorable that but mini minoso i mean come on galen that's a great name right there
0: <laughs> oh it's a fantastic name and he and, and somewhere in his list of names is Satorino. i think he has like 8 or 9 names but he had three years in the Negro Leagues with the New York Black Cubans, and he was a very fine player. He went to spring training with the Indians in 1949. I write in one of my books about Artie Wilson, who was, I call, the greatest shortstop you never heard of. Now, Artie just had a cup of coffee in the majors, but he had a great Negro League and minor league career. Miniman also was at spring training with the Indians in 49, was one of their top hitters and uh, they didn't quite, at that time, know where to play him. He he actually came up as a third baseman. They sent him down to the Coast League, to the San Diego Padres, and he switched to the outfield. And um, mostly what he played in the majors was the outfield. But he started with the Indians, which was at that time owned by Bill Veck. His greatest years were with Bill Veck, with the Chicago White Sox. So uh, he was one of Bill Veck's favorite players. Uh, he was a colorful player. I mean, he was just as dynamic as Willie Mays in terms of speed and what happened on the field. They call him the, they called him the Cuban Comet. Of course, uh, Bill Veck brought him back to play for, uh, I think it was eight at-bats with the White Sox in the 70s. And then he had two at-bats in the 80s, and that gave him five decades. Believe it or not, five decades. And I think Jim Cott had four decades. So that's quite an achievement there. It was interesting also, I, I, I looked this up today, in his first at bat in the majors, Minnie men with the White Sox in 1951, this is his rookie season. He had a 415-foot home run in his first at bat. In that same year, he hit 326 as a rookie. He had 14 triples. In one year, uh, he led the league in triples three times. And in one year, in, in 1954, he had 18 triples. Imagine that. So he was an exciting player. Uh, to me, Robert, the most exciting play in baseball is the triple. And I'll give you this little anecdote. I saw Michael Jordan, by the way, play twice, once in Chattanooga and once in Knoxville. And by the way, he had three hits in the game in Chattanooga and two in Knoxville. I don't know how many hits he had in his whole career, but he had, when I saw him play twice, he had five hits, but he had a triple in the game in Chattanooga. And I'll always remember that triple because watching Michael Jordan, this six foot seven guy with outstanding speed, really running uh, from home plate to, and sliding into third base safe with a triple. That was the most exciting individual play I ever saw in terms of a of a, of a hitter running the bases. So the triples, uh, I have a great admiration for anybody who can get, like Manny Minoso did, 18 triples in a season.
1: And we mentioned that Manny Minoso and Tony Oliva Cubans, that opens the door up for Cubans, which means a lot to the Astros right now because Jordan Alvarez and Yuli Gurriel and Al Diaz have been so critical for them over the last few years. Um, That leads me also to uh, speaking of trailblazing Bud Fowler. And you mentioned him briefly earlier for people who don't know, he's widely considered the first black professional baseball player. So it wasn't Jackie Robinson. And I'm going to get to what that was all about in just a second, but he pitched and played the infield in the 1800s later helped found the page fence giants, one of the all-time great black barnstorming teams, died at age 54 back in 1913. He's also credited as creating the first shin guard. White players would slide into the base that he was covering cleats high, spiking (laughs) Fowler in the shins, so he cut out wood planks and strapped them to his lower legs. Who gets status as the first pro-black ball player is incredibly confusing to me, Galen, because there was a thought (laughs) that it was Moses Fleetwood Walker who was the first black professional ball player, at least the first who openly was because actually William Edward white preceded Walker in this conversation, but he concealed his racial background. This is of course back in the 1800s from what I read. It sounds like Fowler didn't play in the majors Galen, but is the first to play professionally in any way on an all-white baseball team, so it get you. You kind of are trying to figure out how this all connects to you know between all these guys that have had at some point the the moniker of the first black professional baseball player.
0: Well, and uh, I I ran into that when I wrote about Artie Wilson in the Coast League, and uh, I was well aware of a of a black player playing earlier, although he had played as a uh, as an Indian. Uh, this was in the Coast League, so. I wasn't around to see Bud Fowler play in 1878, and I don't know that there are any eyewitnesses. I'm not questioning any of the things attributed to him. Uh, I, I, when you get into the Negro leagues, and I've done a lot of work in that area, it's an area where you know there are not a whole lot of stats, and unfortunately, you know most of the things that were came out of the Negro leagues were from black sports writers or from players, and there weren't that many black sports writers so not so much of it came through the media uh you know the pittsburgh courier did a good job at that time that was an all-black newspaper but you've now got the door open where they're now they're combining a lot of the negro league stats with mlb stats uh, i'm all for integrating that as well as uh jackie robinson integrated the game or major leagues in 1947 but it's a tricky proposition when you you start doing these things um you know buck o'neill uh i i would never debate buck o'neill being in the hall of fame he was an ambassador for negro league baseball
1: did you ever get a chance to meet him or talk to him i all? did
0: not i did not i was um uh, uh, trying to get on his radar and by that time you know after the uh the documentary that he was featured in and actually made the documentary. You, know, you look at his stats, he played pretty much his entire career with the Monarchs, Kansas City Monarchs. As a player, he only hit 258 and nine home runs. Now, he was one of the first uh, blacks. Uh, he was a coach with the uh, the Chicago Cubs. Uh, he helped sign Ernie Banks and several other key players. I'm not questioning his record, but primarily Buck O'Neill. When you walk in the Hall of Fame, there's a statue of Buck already there. He was ambassador for the Negro League Baseball, and a great ambassador, a tremendous spokesman, lovable. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. And that kind of gets back to the point I made earlier in the conversation, Robert, and that is it's not always on-field performance. And I think prior to this conversation, I mentioned Kurt Flood. The whole salary structure of baseball today, the free agency, goes back to Kurt Flood opening the doors. And he was a pretty fair player. I haven't taken a look at his numbers but if if we're going to put a Bud Fowler into the Hall of Fame for being the first African American to play, or Buck O'Neill for being the kind of ambassador that he was for the Negro Leagues, then a Kurt Flood, who really paved the way for free agency, wh- how things exist today, how he changed the reserve
1: clause. You know, to me, uh, a good case to be made for Kurt Flood. You know, if you look at some of these guys, they would be considered like in it- a maybe a contributor aspect where the NFL, I know they've got, you know, contributors that they vote in, or I'm sorry, I think it's the NBA, but maybe the NFL does it too. And what I don't understand is, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think baseball has that, you know, you should have like guys that would be voted in as far as current contributors, you know, whether it's, you know, the commissioners or general managers or, or things like that. And, and and maybe separate them. And I don't know, maybe general managers would be considered just in the regular Hall of Famers. But isn't that where you would put somebody like uh, a Buck O'Neill or a, a Bud Fowler or a Kurt Flood?
0: For lack of a better word, maybe trailblazers. And going back to the baseball reliquary in the Shrine of the Eternals, that's what they've tried to do. Marvin Miller is in their uh, Shrine of the Eternals. So is uh, Kurt Flood. Because they saw it was it was impact they had on the game, trailblazers. And I'm looking at Kurt Flood's uh, numbers now. Now, he had a 293 batting average. He had 6,357 at-bats, home runs. He wasn't a home run hitter, 85 home runs. He was an outstanding defensive center fielder. But he was the MVP, it looks like, in 1965. He didn't have a bad career. But would I put him in on the basis of his performance in the field? No. But... Given the significant impact Kurt Flood had on all the players' salaries and their ability to go from one team to the next, it started with Kurt Flood. And the same thing, Marvin Miller is in the same boat. So those two guys, if you put one in, I think you got to put the other in. But whether you like what happened at that time, they were the pioneers in doing it. And maybe that's the category. Maybe it's pioneers. I'd have to think about some others, but I'm sure there are some others that you would think of as well.
1: Yeah, umpires, the, the, that should be its own category, just the way they do uh, media members. And and may, maybe I'm just forgetting and that, that that category is already there, but I can't imagine it's there if Kurt Flood and guys like Marvin Miller and some of these other ones aren't in there. Buck O'Neill would have been in there years ago as well, unless uh, it was a total oversight. But I want to ask you about one other player that's a, a former Astro, not not an Astro for long, but some important Astro years, but he didn't get the number of votes this year, even though he's one of the greatest offensive second basemen. but he wasn't a good defensive player. Although, you know, you see an Edgar Martinez and David Ortiz, not exactly known for their defense. Uh, Kent was a five-time All-Star though, four-time in the top 10 MVP ballots, three-time Silver Slugger, career OPS is 855. Is he Hall of Famer, Galen?
0: You know, I saw him on the list. Uh, Robert. And I have to say that I, at the time that I, I saw him play that I didn't think so, but you know, your, your views change over time because you kind of see certain things shift. And given what the criteria is today, yes. And I think you have to be flexible in looking at things. I mean, I was reading about one of the Boston sports writers who made it public that he wasn't going to vote for David Ortiz. But, you know, I thought, that's kind of ridiculous. In fact, what surprised me was, I think it was on just one paper alone, I think it's the Boston Globe, uh, seven of the writers vote. And that, to me, is a little too concentrated. I mean, that spread it out. But, yes, Jeff Kent, uh, I saw that he, I think he's number 11. Uh, I was on the list, but he was right after... Alex Rodriguez, who had thirty four point three, Rodriguez rounded out the top ten, and then there was Jeff Kent. Now, right below Jeff Kent was Manny Ramirez, twenty eight point nine. Now, would I let Manny Ramirez in? Now, I, I, you know, I, he was colorful. He had a great career.
1: Well, Manny Ramirez's numbers are off the chart, but you know, twice he was busted for steroids, you know, same type yep. as a rod. So that's, yeah. he's in that category. I mean, it's if you believe in a rod, you, you got to almost believe in a, in, in, in Manny Ramirez. I don't, I don't know.
0: Like I say, it gets confusing. There's, there's another word we haven't used in this conversation. What we've, we've touched on it. That's consistency. And Jeff Kent would fall into that category consistency. And so, and so would uh, Lance Berkman. And that's, that's what I look for. I mean, I'm working on a, a football book now, Robert. I was interviewing this, this football coach and I was asking, how do you measure success? And of course, you know, he said, but well, wins and losses are in number of championships or are, are ways that often success is measured. But he said, it's it's your performance over a period of time. That's how he measures it. You know, it, that you don't go from 13-0 one season to two and eight the next and back and forth. And I think, with Hall of Famers, I look for consistency. How good were they over a certain period of time? Was their worst years, were they not too far off from their best years And that consistency? And uh, guys like Jeff Kent would be in that category because I recall him being a very consistent player. At the same time, you know, he was with the Giants when Barry Bonds was there. So he got lost in the shadow of Barry Bonds, and he probably was in the shadow of a couple of players there in Houston as well. It was just one of these guys who was kind of always in the background.
1: You talk about consistent. You know, there was a real stretch there where he's top 10 in the MVP, top 10 in MVP the next year. He's an all star the next year, all star and MVP number one that year. He's an all star of the year after that, sixth in the MVP after that. He's winning Silver Sluggers, by the way, three of those seasons. And then maybe a year off and then he gets another all-star, another all-star with the silver slugger. And, and, you know, 2005, I I was right. He, he was not there with the world series team. I thought, yeah, he might've only been there for the 2004 season, but for the Astros I'm talking about, but uh yeah he was uh very consistent throughout his career and you know like Barry Bonds though not super liked guy and that always seems to play a factor in it and maybe it shouldn't but that's just kind of life you know sometimes like just it's going to play a factor Galen that's all there is to it oh sure it is sure it is uh and, and you know uh, Jeff Kent when I look at him that
0: say compared to Scott Rowland I think Jeff Kent even though he got 32.7 and Rowland got 63.2, Jeff Kent, I'd put over Scott Rowland. I don't have the stats to look at for either one of them, but I'm just simply saying my impression of them, my memory of them, and just when I saw him play, what who who would, I, who would I take if I was building a team? I would have taken Jeff Kent over Scott Rowland. I think the process for selecting the Hall of Famers, the Baseball Writers Association of America, something needs to be done. To kind of clean that up and make it a little more relevant. If you got, uh, you know, in the history of the Hall of Fame, if you got of the 268 players who are there, only 135 have come in via the Baseball Writers' ballot. It just raises raises my eyebrows for sure.
1: It's always going to be a beauty contest, isn't it, Galen? It's like <laughs> you you walk into a gallery and you're like, uh, hey, what does this guy look like? Uh, uh, well, I kind of like the thing. What do you think of it? And the other guy's like, well, I don't know. It's it's not my thing.
0: <laughs> I remember, I guess this is not the best measurement, but I think there is a factor. There are some players when they would walk to the play, We're talking about hitters now, that you wanted to be there to see it. If you were heading for the concession stand and you returned to your seat or you stopped right at the top of the stairs and looked out before you went over the concession stands, that's before they put television in the t- concession stands. There's only a handful of players in my time following the game where I wouldn't leave my seat. Uh, by the way, I only attended one world series and the only run scored in that decisive game. It was the sixth game. Uh, it was when the Braves beat the Indians, I think it was a 1995 or 96 world series. Unfortunately, I was in the bathroom when the only run was scored and that was David justice hitting a home run. But uh, you know, guys like David Ortiz, I would stick around and watch them hit. And even Michael Jordan, when he came to bat in the two games I saw, I I stayed in my seat or I stayed in the position to see him uh, perform. Barry Bonds was another guy. You you would not go go get a beer or do anything if Barry Bonds was hitting. And, and And I'm not saying that's the criteria to be in the Hall of Fame, but that's the kind of magnetism some of these guys have. And when you have that kind of magnetism, particularly if you have some of the other things going for you that an Ortiz and a Bonds do, uh, have going for him, then that influences me. That's part of the beauty contest, I guess.
1: Yeah. I'll throw in Bo Jackson again, not a hall of famer, but boy, oh boy, it was fun when he got up to the plate to see what he was going to do. And before I let you go, tell us a little about your latest book, the best little baseball town in the world. It's
0: about the Crowley Millers in Crowley, Louisiana. Uh, they played in the Evangel League, uh, and that league was created in the 30s, lasted until 1957. Probably the most famous player for the Crowley Millers was George Brunette, a left-handed pitcher who wound up uh, pitching until age 48 in the Mexican League. He has the record for all-time strikeouts in the minors, and he also is probably best known for his Row in Jim Bouton's book, and that's where Jim Bouton asked him why he doesn't wear underwear, and he he said that um, he had a reason for not wearing underwear, and one of them was he didn't want to have any problem if somebody found him in an accident in a car. But it was it's one of the great exchanges in the book Jim Bouton had with George Bowden with, with uh, George Brunet. George Brunette played for the Crowley Millers, um, probably the central figure in the book is a guy named Conk Merryweather, And he won several home run titles in the minors. After he left baseball, he killed his mother-in-law and his father-in-law with an ax. So uh, that's the best little baseball town in the world. Crowley, Louisiana set um, the attendance record for three straight years in the minors in the early 50s when a lot of teams were disappearing. And it just was a fascinating story about a fascinating part of the country and a league that produced some some really great players. Uh, it was a, one of the lower classification leagues, but it produced guys like uh, Hal Newhouser, Virgil Fire Trucks, two great pitchers. Newhouser's in the Hall of Fame. Eddie Lopat was the first baseman in the league, went on to become a great Yankee pitcher. Pete Reiser, who uh, won the betting title for the Dodgers in 1941, is best known for running into uh, a wall there in Brooklyn and, and suffering a concussion that pretty much ended his career. So they produced a lot of really outstanding player. this uh, Joe Jackson, by the way, supposedly was a ringer in the league. Uh, uh, he came and played on weekends under a different name, but uh, uh, it's uh, was a fun book to read. I mean, to write uh, Crowley, Louisiana actually uh, is responsible for my current book, which, I'm calling um, Coach of a Lifetime. It's about a coach at Notre Dame High School in Crowley. And uh, he's, he's a legend in that area. So that's, I met him through this book. But one guy we did not mention, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, say his name, is Fred McGriff. You know, we've gone through this whole conversation, and Fred McGriff, we've overlooked the fact the guy played 19 years, 493 home runs, 284 batting average. Now, you talk about a steady Eddie. Fred McGriff was it. And he should be in the Hall of Fame too, in my book.
1: Yeah, no, I'm a big Fred McGriff fan. And he just played so many on so many teams that I think he gets lost in the shuffle because of that. And then a lot of people would say, oh, he was good, but not great. But he was good for a long time. And that's where you get in this whole argument we were talking about earlier. And just want to remind everybody that if you're interested in, in Galen's book, the best little baseball town in the world. It's galenwhitebaseball.com. The other five books or other four books, all five of them are on the website. So you can order them there and keep up with what all Galen's doing. And just want to thank you so much, Galen. It's always good to catch up with you.
0: Yeah, same here. Now, I was just trying to think, see if we can uh, shut this down on a good note. Fred McGriff's nickname, Crime Dog. And it won the great nickname. That is a Hall of Fame nickname, Crime Dog.
1: Oh, absolutely. Fantastic nickname for sure. Um, And and that's one of the things that's missing in baseball these days is, is the good nicknames. Yes. Just a quick reminder for our listeners, by the way, before we take off, make sure to check out our podcast a couple of days ago with longtime NFL and fantasy writer Andy Rio. I got Andy's take on the Texans coaching search, and we went through every game from that incredible divisional baseball or playoff weekend i should say i'm in baseball mode but uh nfl playoff weekend um so yeah you need to check it out if you haven't already and um once again uh thank you so much uh, galen always good to catch up with you thank you robert appreciate it you're listening to houston sports talk